Welcome to the Passing Judgment Podcast, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Jessica Levinson, a professor at Loyola Law School, and today we're going to be talking about arguably the most anticipated cases of this Supreme Court term, the cases dealing with President Trump's financial information. Two big cases, one dealing with whether or not Congress can subpoena President Trump's financial information, another dealing with a New York State case asking for very similar information. And today, to help us break down those rulings, we have producer Joe Armstrong. Hello, Jessica. How are you? I'm good. Happy last day of the Supreme Court term, Joe. Happy. Is there like a special ceremony or like festive tree or with decorations on it or an elaborate gift giving regimen or anything that goes into the last of the term? Like, do they, what do they do? Do they go to the bar and do shots of Jägermeister? What happens? How did you know? You know, so typically what happens is the Supreme Court waits until the biggest cases and they release those on the last day and then they're on a plane. Of course, nothing is typical about this. And so this year, what are the Supreme Court justices doing? Ruth Bader Ginsburg is probably watching some opera. Chief Justice John Roberts may be going for a walk, potentially playing some golf. And so they're all basically doing what the rest of us are doing, which is their home or their trying to do fairly safe activities. So no shots at the bar. Kavanaugh's doing uh, beer bongs and <laughs> organizing his collection of calendars, something to that effect. I'll no comment on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, little humor, little humor, little levity's good. So we set the stage a little bit about presidents and taxes because the two major rulings that came out today, this morning, both involved Mr. Trump and his taxes. So Presidents didn't start releasing tax information until Nixon almost 50 years ago. But even in his case, it wasn't voluntary. So uh, tell me just a little bit about the history of presidents and taxes. So exactly as you said, presidents didn't typically release their taxes. This is a fairly recent development. But in modern history, President Trump stands out as a candidate who did not release his information. And so that's really where our story begins, which is that President Trump even when he was candidate Trump, really zealously guarded the privacy of his financial information. He famously said, I'll release my tax returns when uh, an IRS audit is done. Of course, an IRS audit has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you can release your taxes. And what the cases today show us is that President Trump is willing to go to the mat and really fight to maintain the privacy of his financial documents. Now, tell me, why do, because the two parties, the interested parties here that want to see his taxes are Congress and a New York prosecutor and grand jury. Why, respectively, do those two groups want to see his taxes? So on the one hand, we have uh, actually three congressional committees who have subpoenaed the president's personal financial information. Important thing to remember is we're not talking about official presidential documents here. We're not talking about anything that could be covered under something called executive privilege. We're not talking about anything that raises national security issues. This is the president's personal financial information dealing with his finances prior to when he was president. And Congress has said, we're looking at basically two things. One is the adequacy of government ethics laws. And the other is potential foreign interference, foreign influence in our domestic elections. 
And therefore, because we're contemplating legislation in those areas, we have a valid reason for asking your accountants and your lenders for this information. On the other hand, in the other case, there is a New York prosecutor and there's a grand jury who is looking into potential state law violations and specifically violations dealing with uh, hush money payments that were made uh, either indirectly or directly from President Trump to women who allegedly had affairs with him. And this really came from the Michael Cohen, President Trump's former personal attorney, uh, his testimony where he said that, you know, there was some funny business with um, with these payments. And so New York is saying, we need this information because we're going through a state criminal investigation. There are other people who are potential witnesses. We need to maintain the information so it doesn't get stale. And that's really the background of the two cases. If I may, the background is not whether the public is entitled to this information. The background is not, is it good policy for the public to have a fuller picture of their presidential candidates' financials, to have a fuller picture of who they might have a conflict of interest with, of what their business dealings are. These are really just separate legal questions. Yeah, it's a lot less sexy to think about it in those terms. It's not just that everybody You're wants welcome. to see his uh, <laughs> to see his taxes, but it has to do more with norms and the rule of law and uh, policy, good policy overall. Now, on the flip side, why is he so obstinate about not wanting us to see his taxes? Is he just merely being difficult about it? Or is there something, I mean, this is a little speculative, I suppose, but is this something that he just doesn't want people to see because it's his information or, 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 or? Yeah, this is a great question. And so there's probably two different reasons. There's, you know, maybe the real reason. And then there's the reason that President Trump has put forward in legal documents. The real reason is uh, he has been very consistent in saying that he doesn't want to provide his financial information, that he does not want to give the American public a full view of the uh, his business dealings, of, again, who he might have business dealings with, whether it might give rise to a conflict of interest. And so he's been really, again, very consistent in saying, I don't want to give you a full picture of my financial background. Now, what he said in court is slightly different. So let's continue to take the congressional case first. What President Trump basically argued is, Congress, you overstepped. When you subpoenaed this personal financial information and you sent these subpoenas to my accountant and my lenders, you're just on a fishing expedition and you don't really have a valid legislative purpose. You're just trying to see if I engage in some sort of wrongdoing. And so what President Trump's argument was really, Congress, you you walked into a place where you don't have purview. And the federal government supporting the president said, Congress, when you ask a sitting president or when you ask for information regarding a sitting president, you should have to adhere to a higher standard. So that those were the arguments in the first case. In the second case, the New York case, President basically argued that he's immune from even participating in an investigation. So we operate under the assumption that sitting presidents can't be prosecuted or can't be indicted while in office, but not under the assumption that they're immune from investigation. And the court today agreed 
the Department of Justice in supporting President Trump basically made a similar argument to what they made in the congressional cases, which is you're asking for information regarding a sitting president. You have to show a higher need. Right. The bar. It's all about the bar in this case and not the lawyer bar and not the bar where I'm going to have a pint, but the bar at which you can ask for those types of uh, documents and information. Right. That's the clarification there. It's all about thresholds. It's all about hurdles. It's all about producer Joe, please don't go to a bar unless you're distanced and wear a face mask. So, yes, that's exactly right. (laughs) Absolutely not. As much as I want to go get a pint, I am not going to go do so. And you shouldn't either, Jessica. No pints for you. So doesn't in the congressional case, isn't this a situation where it's further shifting power from the congressional branch to the executive branch in terms of oversight? If Congress can't look into a president and can't indict him or her someday, uh, isn't that the case? Well, this is the congressional case is really about this boundary between executive power and congressional power, which is something you and I have been talking about a lot. Congress, of course, doesn't actually indict presidents, but What it does tell us is not just with respect to this president, President Trump, but with respect to future presidents, how much can Congress ask about those presidents' personal financial information? And what standard, what threshold does Congress have to meet? And today, what the Supreme Court said is they basically took this kind of Goldilocks approach. They said, Congress... Your standard is too low. You have to show a little bit more. But President Trump and Department of Justice, your standard is too high. So we're going to create, as the Supreme Court loves to do, a multi-factor test. And lower courts, you go ahead and apply that test and tell me whether or not Congress has enough of a reason to ask for these financial documents. So again, for me, it's really important that people know This isn't just about this president. It's about the presidency. And as you asked me about, it's about the power of Congress and the power of the executive, which is, you know, increasingly they're duking it out. And this this court gives us a little bit of a definition of where those boundaries are. Yeah. And this power tends to shift over the decades, I know. So it sounds, again, like so many other things from the Supreme Court, a bit of a punt to the lower courts. For the congressional cases, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think punt is the word of the day. And what's important for the public to know is that it means we're not going to see President Trump's financials before the election. So the congressional cases were our best chance of seeing this information because Congress really operates it out in the open. And I don't think there's any way this court can go up and this case can go up and down the court system in time for the election. The New York case, of course, you also asked me about kind of the boundaries of executive power. The New York case is a little bit different. In that case, what the Supreme Court said is a president is not absolutely immune from being part of an investigation. Again, important for presidents going forward. And because the New York grand jury operates in secret, like any other grand jury, even if they get this information before the election, very unlikely the public sees it before the election. Yeah. And in New York, pulpy, 90-point font newspaper rags, it's the more salacious of these two cases that one day may bear fruit in terms of seeing his taxes, even though it's a sad trombone for a lot of people that we're not going to see that information before the actual election itself, when it would be kind of important to know that. Uh, But we're not going to find that out until much later, if at all. Do you you think, what are the chances? Do you think at some point that we will see his information? Oh, I really don't know, because 
as we said, I think the New York case is the case where uh, we're most likely it's most likely that President Trump's accountants and lenders are going to have to turn over the information. But grand juries do operate in secret. It really depends on what the investigation finds, whether or not there are charges, whether or not we can read the tea leaves of the charges. With respect to Congress, really, really hard to predict. I, you know, I know everybody loves it when you say yes and no and absolutely, but today, frankly, it's really a mixed decision and there's a lot of uncertainty. The one thing we know is welcome to America. We're going to continue fighting in the courts. Isn't that what we say to children when we're trying to placate them? Yes, comma, but? I think it's what the Supreme Court says to us. It's what we say to our children. It's certainly in part what the Supreme Court said today, which it was kind of but or a little bit maybe. Yeah, sometimes maybe. So in terms of the SCOTUS scorecard, which justices ruled which way in these two particular cases? And keep in mind that two of these justices are Trump appointees. Yes. So both of these cases were seven to two decisions. In both cases, uh, we have Chief Justice John Roberts writing for a majority. And in both cases, the two justices who dissented were Justices Clarence Thomas, who was appointed by the first President Bush, and Justice Samuel Alito, who was appointed by the second President Bush. And they really have proven to be the conservative wing of the conservative side of the Supreme Court. Now, in in both cases, what Chief Justice Roberts was able to do, which I think really speaks to his view of the Supreme Court and how important it is to be viewed as impartial, is that he was able to get more than a five to four majority. This wasn't just a break along clear kind of ideological lines. And so by being able to get President Trump's two appointees, uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, I think what he's really saying is this isn't about President Trump. It's not about whether or not we like him. This is about the power of the presidency, the power of Congress, the power of state investigations. And it is true that Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, the true Trump appointees, did write a separate and a more narrow decision in one of the cases, in the New York case. But the takeaway here is they joined the majority. This wasn't a thin five to four decision. Chief Justice John Roberts, I think, is able to send a message that you don't just vote according to what helps the president who appointed you. Right. Objectivity, I think, is the key word here. That's the goal. What did you think about the SCOTUS term overall this time? We'll go into more detail on a future episode, hopefully with an expert who knows more about it than I do. But what do you think about this whole term as compared to other terms, especially with this recent court? Well, this it's so trite to say, but this was really a fascinating term. I mean, if for no other reason than that we had to postpone oral arguments, we got to be on a conference call with the justices, hear them ask questions live over the phone, really open the doors to the Supreme Court. Uh, yes, of course, there was that snafu of the flush heard around the world when one of the justices, here's looking at you, Stephen Breyer, seems to have flushed the toilet in the middle of our arguments. But that alone was historic. What do we take from the term? There were a lot of decisions that the headline might just read as Chief Justice John Roberts suddenly becomes a liberal, or Chief Justice John Roberts is a swing vote moderate. 
But if we dig a little deeper, what we see is there was a lot of details in the cases before the Supreme Court, the abortion case, DACA, the LGBTQ rights case, where as a conservative judge, you could make a decision that had that leads to an outcome that liberals would like. So I, I know I said this before, but it's not always the case that a conservative judicial philosophy maps right on top of a conservative political philosophy. That's one of the things I take away. Another thing is, as long as President Trump is president, I think you're going to see Chief Justice John Roberts just try and hold the independence of the judiciary together with, you know, gum, shoestrings, scotch tape. I think he's doing everything he can to show uh, there is independence in our government. We are doing our jobs. And as he famously said, they're not Obama judges. They're not Trump judges. There's some truth to the criticism that there is, but there's also some truth that you can't always predict how justices will vote just based on the partisan affiliation of the president who appointed them. Yeah, there's a lot of history there, too. And uh, it's almost well, it is sad that everyone has to look at everything from a team perspective or a tribal perspective these days. And I applaud uh, personally, at least. Uh, Justice Roberts' position in that regard, trying to keep the keel pointed down towards Davy Jones' locker, keep this thing moving forward and upright. So, (laughs) man, pick whatever metaphor you want. But, uh, man, it's got to be tough in these, what's the word, difficult times, trying times, contentious times. Totally crazy and insane times. Yes, absolutely. Let's go with that. Thank you, Jessica. Producer Joe Armstrong, thank you for passing judgment with us. Will you remind the listeners where we can find more of you and specifically more of your music? Indepday.com, I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. Also that on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you do want to hear my music, it's a rock and roll sort of thing. You can always go to joearmstrong.com. Yes, I am master of my domain. We go to that website often. As you know, you are a fan favorite in my house. So this has been another special episode of Passing Judgment. You can find us on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod, and please feel free to tweet me at Levinson Jessica. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.